0: Genesis 3, we're going to, our verses this evening would be Genesis 3, 1 through 15. And then we'll get into Genesis 4. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast in the field which the Lord had, God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor you shall touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman you gave me, you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and on, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now over to Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offerings, but he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry? <coughs> and why has your countenance found, fallen? If you do well, will it not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it." Now Cain talked with his brother, uh, talked with Abel his brother, And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground that shall no longer yield its strength to you, a fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me, he will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore... Whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone find anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Aradi, and Erod begot Mehujel and Mehujel begot Methshiel, and Methshiel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives, and the name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. And Ada bore Jebel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother name was Jubel. He was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Then Lamech said to his wives, Attach and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventyfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. For God appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also was born uh, a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then and then man began to call on the name of the Lord. Thus far, in God's precious holy word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is truth before us. It is rich, it is deep. We thank you that you have given this word to us for edification and uh, that you revealed yourself through the special revelation that we may know you and know the ways of yourself, that we may find um, comfort in, the, in our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, and the ability to know and love you. We ask that you bless our time and may the words of my mouth, the meditation of all our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. Amen. So, I titled this sermon, A Tale of Two Cities. A Tale of Two Cities, if you are familiar with that title, there was a a book in 1859 written by Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, There was a duality, I'm not gonna get into the book so much, but there was a duality that exists in the world that he was talking about in, in that work. It basically compared two cities. It was London and it was Paris. So I, I, uh, the name of the sermon is "A Tale of Two Cities." I divide it into three sections: uh, Genesis 4:1 through 12, the hope and tragedy of Cain; then Genesis 4:13 through 24, the city of man, the, the establishment of God's common grace; and Genesis 4:25 through 26, the city of God. God fulfills His promise by providing a new redemptive seed. So the story of the Bible can be told in almost the same way, the tale of two cities. If if you've ever read the book, right on the first page, I think the first line, it said, It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And so much was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived in a state of paradise, communing with God, walking together with him in the cool of the day. It was literally heaven on earth. Then it was the worst of times. Eve and then Adam found not to be satisfied with all God had given them. They rejected God, their protector and rightful sovereign, and were seduced by the clever packaging of the evil one, or the serpent. Now, instead of living in a state of bliss, Adam and Eve were now living in the presence of judgment, not comfort. Remarkably, God allowed them to live uh, when they deserved death. He allowed them to live without compromising his justice. We read uh, in Genesis 3:21 that uh, he provided garments of skin and, and clothed them uh, because they realized they were naked. It's thought by many uh, theologians that this was the first sacrifice uh, to atone for sin. Uh, animals were sacrificed for their uh, forgiveness of their, of their sin. So we see in Genesis 15, though, as God is pronouncing the curse on, on Satan, he concludes in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So thus begins the war of the worlds. The seed of the woman who is to come to God is promising redemption, even in the, the moment of um, pronouncing judgment. So it's the woman of the seed versus the seed of the serpent in the war of the worlds. So though fallen, the world is plunged into sin. God continues his creation. Adam and Eve were not executed, but they were allowed to continue having been given their mandate to to be fruitful and to multiply. We find that in Genesis 28. But now, Adam and Eve, there was a difference. They had to anticipate a future rest that was beyond the grave, not through their obedience like it was before, but by God's grace. As we get into the first few verses of Genesis 4, we see that uh, Eve is given birth to a son. His name is Cain. And that can be translated in one of two ways. I have acquired a man, or I have acquired the man. Most scholars, uh, I think, are, correctly, are correct. Uh, because there's no Hebrew in, the, in language, um, there's no article in Hebrew language, therefore, um, therefore, therefore it's translated, I have acquired the man. Since Cain, the name Cain actually means, here he is. Okay, So this is her seed. So Eve, thinking, we're told in Genesis 3.15, by Eve's seed, um, he will uh, crush the serpent's head. So why would God wait? Why not do it right away? It's kind of the way we think a lot of times. So Eve thinks that out of him will come a new heaven and new earth out of Cain. So Eve really believes that the prophecy is now fulfilled. But what a tragic realization that he is not the Messiah, but actually the first Antichrist, the first ever persecutor of the church. Now, if we get into Genesis 4, 4, verses 3 through 7, we have to extrapolate a little bit from the text. One son, Abel, had brought a sacrifice according to what God commanded the fat of the lamb, the only sacrifice that was accepted by God. The other son, Cain, basically decided to invent a form of worship, bringing, you could say, sort of a fruit basket. Cain was surprised that God really didn't, that Cain was surprised that God rejected the sacrifice. No, uh, God didn't uh, respect, um, or um, didn't respect Cain's sincerity, you know we hear that in the world today. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere about it. Well, Cain was sincere and God rejected it. Okay. Now, this day and age, there's a lot of debate within the visible church, I and mean, it's been through the centuries. There's a debate. Some say it's uh, 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 you have to there. There's proper form of worship today, and there's others who say we they're say, they say that we have to go by the word of god what god commands it and that's the position i would take but there's a lot of uh people say if god doesn't for, uh, forbid it then it's okay so we see a lot of things happening today uh to the most bizarre you know we see clowns for christ and things of that nature so there's this debate uh how to worship but it, this situation between cain and abel It was basically came down to who brought a sacrifice or worship according to God's commandment and who did not. Cain acted on his felt need, basically saying, I'll bring what I produce, what I have made with the work of my hands. I'm earning. I'm earning my, my acceptance before God. Now, we read in Leviticus, we go through the blood sacrifices in Leviticus, and sometimes we're a little perplexed about all this blood and sacrificed animals. But we do read in the New Testament, Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Does all this shed animal blood really satisfy God? No, he doesn't need them, but it's a picture, or it points to the one he will provide whose blood, shed blood he will accept as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. So in Genesis 4, in verses 8 through 11, we see the first, very first church martyr. Cain talked with his brother in the field. Now, Calvin, John Calvin, really believes this was familiar in nature, such as a demeanor uh, that would be portrayed uh, from the church enemies throughout history. They appear gentle. You know, after y'all, is his brother, right? He's probably going out to meet him. They appear gentle and, and that they're willing to help. They act like they're willing to help. But all the time, they're seeking to destroy Ignoring God, that is Cain, after God tried to get Cain to confess his sins or have a little self-reflection here uh, to admit a sin, and then warning him in verses 6 and 7, what does Cain do? He kills Abel. Then Then the Lord asked Cain where Abel was. We read in the text that Cain's response is sarcastic towards God. Calvin basically says that you know, that Cain was probably thinking because he was not he was not required to give an account for his murdered brother because he had received no express command to take care of him. Thinking in his twisted thinking that he could get out of what he just did. Now, if you look in verse 10, the thing that God says to him is, what have you done? Where have we heard that before? We heard that in Genesis three. It's what God said to Adam. It's what God said to Eve. What have you done? Now, if we went through the Bible, it was fresh eyes, not knowing the, the end story, and we know what that is, but through the period of the Bible, there's a storyline of many who could have been this second Adam, who could have been the seed. You know, we, we look at, um, we've we seen the, the question asked to Adam and Eve, then we get to the Abraham or Abram at the time, a uh, noble man. We refer to Abraham as the father of the faith. Could he be the one, the second seed? But we see all his faults in scripture. God reveals it to us. He goes into Egypt. He's afraid that, he's gonna, that the, the Pharaoh is going to kill Sarah, and, or uh, take Sarah for and part of his harem, I'm sorry, and that he will kill Abraham. So what does Abraham do? He lies and says, she is my sister. So he's basically defiling his wife at this time. He's basically making her a harlot. And does he learn his lesson? No. In Genesis 29, with Abimelech, he does the same thing. He fears for his life. Lest I die on her account, you know, he hands over his wife, same situation. And what, what did the Pharaoh say in the first incident? He said to Abraham, what have you done? What did Ambimelech say to Abraham? What have you done? Okay, Isaac comes along. Could he be the one? He's the next in line. The father, uh, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaac is the next in line. Could he be the true seed? Well, like father, like son, in Genesis 26.10, he does the same thing with Ambimelech, the ruler of the Lamb. He gives up his wife to spare his own life. What does Ambimelech say? What have you done? They didn't want to die, but they had defiled their wives instead, totally unlike the true G- G- uh, Messiah, Jesus Christ, who we know laid down his life for his bride, us, the church. That's the end of the story, but we have much more to go in the storyline that we're talking about with Cain and Abel. Now let's go to a backdrop of the story. There is a backdrop going on to really get the idea of what God is telling us in his written word. Satan, after all, he knows the plan. It's right here in Scripture. He knows the one who is going to redeem or to crush his head is going to be coming from the line of Eve. That it will be coming in his line. So his goal is to keep him from being born. We see this in the time of Moses in Exodus Exodus chapter 1 and 2. We also see it in the time of Jesus with King Herod in Matthew 2. So Cain is not the seed of the promise. He becomes a figure for the persecutor of the church for all ages. We can read this in Luke 11, 47 through 51, where Jesus is speaking. Woe to you, for you built the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them and you built their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and persecute that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. So we see that there, how Cain represents the evil one. And also in Jude 11, where the writer writes, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And murdered, they—they they have gone the way of Cain, who have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now we look at that—that that passage of Adam and uh, of uh, Cain and Abel—and we see the murder there, and we gasp. Okay, but the point is, the point is that the true enemy of God is the one. Who tries to draw the church away from what it's called to do in word and sacrament. This is actually worse than the act of murder. Cain was sincere, and he was coming to God with his sacrifice, basically saying, look what I'm bringing before God. We find that in many churches today, we find that doctrine is not important, sincerity is, but like Cain, this subverts the gospel. In Genesis 4, 12 through 22, we see the beginnings of God's common grace. God's curse on Cain now links Cain with Satan. John, the apostle John, makes reference to Cain in this way in the New Testament. In 1 John 3:12, where he says, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Cain is no longer a tiller of the ground, of the soil, but he's to be a fugitive and a vagabond. Surprising here is God's amazing patience with him. What was in order for Cain? Execution. So God has amazing patience with him. Still, Cain is in despair regarding his punishment. He says in verse 13 and 14 that he fears for his life. Is he repentant? No. Is he sorrowful? No. He's very self-centered. He's not has any remorse for what he did to a holy God who made him. He is worried about what is going to happen to him now. So we're told in verse 15 in the, in the same chapter that God put his mark on him. We don't know what that is but it means that God put his hand of protection on him. We can call this probably the first incident that we see in God's word uh, from creation of God's common grace. Common grace for Cain is now removed from God's covenant community and is now to live east of Eden in the land of Nod. And We see that in verse 16. We then read how Cain, lacking faith, That God would protect him. God said, I'll put my hand upon you. I'll put your mark upon you. Does Does he believe God? He lacks faith. No. He builds a city which defiles God's judgment. This earthly city that he's built basically offers him both civilization and protection. However, we know this challenges God's sovereignty. Hence, this is the establishment of the city of men. The faithful, however... In contrast, who will um, basically come to faith and put their trust in the Lord's provided seed, who put their hope in a heavenly city. This is in contrast to those who will be referred to as the city of God. And we read in Hebrews 11.4. The writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. So this is really the first instance of sola fide. Uh, um, you know, the Reformation, the sola scriptura, uh, sola, uh, sola fide is by faith alone. So we see by faith Abel offered the sacrifice that God had required so we see an establishment here the city is going on the city of men we see how God does care about culture and civilization as we live in this world today there is that common grace his common grace allows it to flourish as we see in the world today and throughout history he cares and protects the city of man from each other in other words we're totally depraved we're fallen sinners but he protects man from destroying one another by his common grace He allows cities to thrive, cultures to thrive. He protects them from each other, but he does not protect them from himself, not in a redemptive way. So Cain's descendants, they create a culture as seen in verses 17 through 22 in chapter 4. They live in tents. They have livestock. They become artists, teachers, and craftsmen. We read in, in Matthew a lot of you know this verse, but in Matthew 5.45, Jesus says about God the Father, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So, in other words, God has His blessing on creation despite the curse of the fall. So, the establishment of the city of man is here. Okay? What are the characteristics of the city of man? Well, we can read in verses 23-24. through 24, does it get any better? No. The descendants of Cain get progressively worse. There's not an utopia created. Many like people have the world view today. We're working towards an utopia. But as what's happening, just as it happened then, it, de- it doesn't become an utopia. Utopia, it degenerates. Think in terms of our own culture. So we cannot remove the confusion of the Cain's in the world right now in regards to law and the gospel when I say law I'm meaning good works they trust in their works they trust in their performance they trust in themselves look what I have brought look what I have done we see that in the tower of Babel in the book of Genesis they are self-satisfied with their profession their professions the citizens of the city of man will not accept they cannot understand God's means of redemption from what he has done in sacrificing his own only begotten son, so Cain was the first to apostatize from Christianity. It began with false doctrine and false worship. We see this intensify—i'm sorry, intensify—in generations to come. With the decadent Lamech, as we read in the end of chapter four, he not only abuses God's marriage institution by taking two wives—the first instance of polygamy but he also celebrates his own ego. This is not totally like the book, uh, classic Walt Whitman's A Song of Myself. The unbeliever puts their trust in the city of man, what they can see. They put their trust in law and order, freedom, democracy, communism, free enterprise capitalism, art, socialism, culture, science, education, philosophy, politics, and entertainment. In contrast, we, God's people, put our trust in what we cannot see, the city of God. So the last two verses, Genesis 25 and 26. So the city of man is established. However, there is good news. Abel's dead. City of man's thriving. What what are we to do? So there's good news after the tragedy. A new son to Adam and Eve is provided by God in place of the murdered Abel and exiled Cain. God takes the initiative, giving the new seed. And this person's name is Seth. Now that name means the elect one. Now Seth, the elect one, he begot Enosh. We see that in verse 25. And Then we have a glimmer of hope. We see in verse 26... Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. This is the start of God's golden chain. The scarlet thread of lineage leading to the coming of the promised Messiah, as we know, is the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many in this long line of history of the Bible that may be given hope. As I mentioned earlier, if we were to read the Bible with fresh eyes, not knowing the the end of the story, there there are many that could have been the ultimate seed. We look at Noah. He was preserved, but we know what happened to him. He got drunk, he was naked, he failed. Abraham, we read his failure. We read Isaac's failure. We know of Jacob's failure. We know we, uh, we read the story about Jacob and Esau. You know, sometimes, we should, we're, sometimes we're amazed uh, that God hated Esau, as we're told, but even more remarkable is that God loved Jacob. So Jacob's not the one. Is it King David? Well, we know what happened to King David. We see in him in Scripture, all his warts and all. Not only did he commit adultery, but he committed murder, murdering the woman he had an adulterous relationship with. So all demonstrated along the way their failure is very pronounced in the Bible. So the Gospels tell us, as we get into the New Testament, that the ultimate seed to crush the serpent's head has come in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read this from the evangelist writers echoing the words of Jesus himself in Paul's epistles. Paul even refers to Jesus as the last Adam in, in Romans 5. Jesus was the perfect lamb of God. He was without sin. He was the one to give the blood offering that would be accepted by God. So through this line, the line of Seth, became our savior. God provided the new seat despite the tragedy in chapter four. In chapter four, this is where it all started, what we've read, the first few verses. The start of the tale of two cities, the lineage of the elect and the lineage of the reprobate. It's a storyline that continues throughout the whole Bible. This starts, number one, the separation of the church from the world, the persecution of the church, and lastly, the confusion that the world has with the church. As we see in reading of Cain and his descendants, the creation of culture resulted in sectarianism in just a few generations. It began with false doctrine, as we said, and false worship, and we see the world as it is now. We have to we just turn on the news and see it. Now, how do we apply this essential truth of the city of men and the city of God that runs right through the Bible? How do we use this doctrine, which is so pronounced? So what should the church do when we lament the secularization of the culture? Unfortunately, a lot of times when, the say, when some say that many churches preach bad doctrine, a, Christ, a Christless Christianity, which is predominant today, many churches out there, they're nothing but synagogues of Satan, They do not preach the truth. They do not preach the gospel. They preach man, humanism. But when some say that's the problem, that there's a Christless Christianity or it's entertainment driven, there's entertainment driven worship services, that these are the issue, basically that the church is not being the church. Too too often this is rejected and saying, no, 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 it's because of bad morals. We need to clean up the city of man. They did this in the 1920s, I believe, with prohibition. Trying to clean up the city of man was a disaster. Didn't do anything to change hearts, not at all. So I think the answer to how the church is to respond to the culture that we live in is to be mindful of these two cities and keep them separate. Yes, in this world, as Christ people, you can say we do have a dual citizenship in this world. We are the city of man, but we have a dual citizenship. We are the city of God. You can view it this way. And In fact, I had dinner lunch today with Tom Troxell. He brought up something that I'm going to use he, when he thinks of this. He tells his, uh, his people and his, his church that in the city of God, we view each other as brothers and sisters. In the world, we view them as neighbors. We are to be good to our neighbors. Okay? But what separates us from the world that gives us a dual citizenship and not just one citizenship, as mentioned earlier, Our hope, as we mentioned earlier, is the heavenly city, not the city built by men. Now Peter, he tells us, 1 Peter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, he refers to us and to them back then preaching. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So while here we are to instill, engage the world, but we are a special people. Both are cared for by God, the city of man and the city and God's own city, but only one redemptively, that's the city of God. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. There's no curse on hardware manufacturing. There's no curse on the automobile industry. There's no curse on technical devices or various forms of music and other arts. We should, as God's people, call out things that are contrary to his commands, his moral character. Things like homosexuality, transgenderism, pronoun usage, sexual immorality, abortion, etc. These are clear violations of God's word. Because we're told in, in, in the book, uh, the chapter, the love chapter, some refer to it, 1 Corinthians 13, that tells what real love is that we rejoice in the truth. That is, that we celebrate God's moral law and the full truth of the gospel, being ready to speak against sin, but also to show mercy when the Lord shows mercy. Okay, but what happens when we lose the perspective of the existence of two cities? When we lose that, too often we get angry. To a certain extent, that's righteous anger, but how easily do we go beyond getting angry with things that affect us personally rather than things rather than things that don't necessarily oppose the truth of God's commands, his truth and holiness. We're told that it is not a sin to be angry. We read that in scripture, I believe in the book of Philippians, be angry and do not sin. There is a righteous anger but how, long, how, far, how quickly are we to take it beyond what is righteous? Righteous, is anything, righteous anger is anything that is against the character or the truth of commands of God. When we have unrighteous anger, we're basically getting angry for ourselves, our pride, our wishes, our convenience, what we want to happen. So when this happens, when we do that, The church can end up doing things that poorly represent Christ. We obsess over things like our constitutional rights, the competency of governing authorities, the level of patriotism we want to see, the degree in which we want to wear masks during the pandemic. Sorry, but the church is not a segment of one certain political party. The city as man is fallen. It's twisted. It's corrupt. It hates the things of God. But we, as dual citizens, are to obey the commands of God in relation to the laws and the authority he establishes in the city of men. We read that again in Romans 13, 1 through 4, where God, Paul writes, God says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, sometimes I think in these last year and a half or so, I think, the church, at times, not all the time, you know, if it's anything that, you know, uh, we lose sight of these two cities, I think. Do you know I know people that will not become a Christian because they do not like Donald Trump? I mean, think about that. It's because the church is not keeping things distinct. They're getting involved where we should not. And how do you pull somebody out of that? They, they hate Trump, so they think that if they come to Christ and they are a Christian, they associate with him. They do not particularly like. So, again, as God's people, our primary focus should be to glorify God in the redemption of others, not make efforts to p- improve on God's common grace. We walk by faith. We walk not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. As servants and slaves of Christ, we need to go forth telling obsessed greater Son, Jesus Christ, because you know what? There's still hope for those who are dead and in sin, living living without faith in Christ, trying to find the refuge in the city of man that is bound for utter destruction. The amazing thing by God's mercy and grace is that in these last days that we live in, a person can still find mercy and grace and renounce that citizenship, of the city of man and instead find their refuge in a new citizenship in the city of God, which is bound for eternal life. This is done by placing trust in the seed given in Jesus Christ. So tonight, if you're here and you're examining yourself and you see yourself as a citizen of the city of man, and you want to relocate and belong to that other city, there's still hope for you. We're told in John three sixteen that God so loved the world who, uh, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That the righteousness that he will accept, the only righteousness is the, the sacrifice that his son is provided. What God has done for them, what God has done for you, not what you can do for God. So flee that city of man, come to the city of God. We can see a similar situation if you know Pilgrim's Progress. You look at the main character, Christian, in Pilgrim's Progress. What does he do? He, f- he flees what is called the city of destruction, and the city of man is going to be destroyed. So you, if you're here tonight, becoming a part of God's people, the church, you can also be a partaker of the news that we hear from the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, and I'll close with this. <clears throat> but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've brought us into your city. As we look to your heavenly city, we look to you, Father, by faith. We cannot save ourselves. We are dead in sin. We have to let our pride down, and you have done that in our hearts, that we reach out to you crying, Abba, Father. reach out to the Lord Jesus Christ and find the only means to which we may be reconciled to you thank you for this truth we are your people we pray that you bless us this week as we go our ways this evening as we go into our duties our work our service that we proclaim this truth of the city of, of your city to a world bound for destruction we ask all this In the name of Jesus Christ and for his name's sake. So, now.